0: Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Thursday, May 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, how Amy Klobuchar's Fox News Town Hall turned out, campaign workers for two candidates have now joined unions, Kamala Harris introduces a bill to help public defenders, and Elizabeth Warren releases her plan to eliminate opioid addiction. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. discussed yesterday, Senator Amy Klobuchar spoke at a town hall event in Milwaukee, Wisconsin that was aired live on Fox News. Hosts Martha McCallum and Brett Baer introduced the candidate and explained the building they occupied, the Grain Exchange, a building used to buy and sell wheat in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And by the way, for a place once devoted to wheat trading, this is a spectacular building. I mention this in part because the space itself was almost overwhelming in its opulence. It was a great choice for the event because it seemed to recall a time of tremendous prosperity for Wisconsin. With many of the questions revolving around the economy, that matters. Okay, so what happened in the town hall? Well, to be perfectly honest, most of it was uneventful, except for one very notable exchange we'll get into in a moment. And that's probably good news for Klobuchar, relatively speaking. For Democratic primary candidates watching these Fox News town halls, first by Sanders and now by Klobuchar, there has to be a certain curiosity about what their treatment will be like, whether the hosts will ask fair questions and give time for real answers, and whether the audience seems to have real people with real questions. And for the most part, yeah, totally, this was a normal and fair town hall, and Fox News deserves credit for that. The event involved questions from the audience and the hosts, who gave Klobuchar plenty of room to cover her talking points, criticizing the Republican tax cut, saying that Obamacare should be expanded, giving her proposal for free two-year community college, and even a personal story about her father's alcohol addiction and subsequent treatment. It was, for the first half hour, an absolutely typical town hall. The most notable moment of the night was when the hosts tried to draw a parallel between Klobuchar's treatment of Senator Al Franken, who resigned after allegations of sexual misconduct surfaced. Remember, Franken and Klobuchar were both senators from Minnesota. So the hosts compared and contrasted quotes Klobuchar gave to the media about Franken with her questioning of Justice Brett Kavanaugh in the Senate Judiciary Committee. It seemed like their argument was that Klobuchar was being hypocritical by going after Kavanaugh but giving Franken some kind of pass. I'm going to play a set of clips here, and I'm actually going to cut off portions of Klobuchar's answers so you can see how the line of questioning develops, and in part, how Klobuchar responds. Okay, in this first bit, Martha McCallum speaks first.
1: All right, Senator, I have a question for you. Uh, When your fellow Minnesotan Al Franken faced sexual misconduct allegations, you did an interview with the Rolling Stone magazine and you said, for some of these things, there should be due process. And I felt like this was one of them. Mm -hmm. Why just for some of these situations? I think for all of these situations, uh, you've got to have a process that works. And while there is a lot of focus, of course, on what famous people have done, and there's some really outrageous criminal things that have happened in this area, we want to make sure we are also protecting the nurse in the hospital, the worker on the factory floor.
0: Okay, I cut that off because we're going somewhere with this. Klobuchar started talking about how she worked on bipartisan legislation related to sexual harassment in Congress itself. And during that answer, McCallum cuts Klobuchar off to pursue this line of questioning. Listen to this bit.
1: I led that bill, and we completely overhauled but the sexual I just want to follow up on due law. process because it's an yeah. important part of this, and it's, it's part of the conversation that has now become a more prominent part of this yes. conversation. So when you say for Al Franken that there should have been more due process in his situation, you've also said that he deserves a third act in his career. So do you believe that in some aspects the Me Too movement has gone too far? I think you look at things on a case-by-case basis. I don't think it's gone too far because I think we still have harassment going on in the workplaces. All I'm saying is one case isn't exactly like another. And for anyone uh, that is accused of harassment, now you can edge over into criminal acts, uh, which is a way different situation, rape, things like that. But when that happens, you just have to have a a process in your workplace. So you figure out, you get the facts. Um, Managers do, people do, people have a right to bring their cases forward, and then you make a decision on how they're handled.
0: Now, that answer went on further, but I only want to use the minimum audio necessary to understand what's happening here. Okay, so Klobuchar can clearly tell what's coming here, and as she's wrapping up her answer to applause from the room, Brett Baer jumps in with this next bit. He doesn't even wait for the applause to stop.
1: Uh, To every workplace in Wisconsin and across our country. What about...
0: What about Brett Kavanaugh? Did he have due process when he was questioned by you in that committee? And did he have due process being innocent before proven guilty by Democrats in that process? And this is where it gets really interesting. The camera goes to Klobuchar during the question, and she starts smiling, like a really big smile, during Bayer's question. She even looks out into the audience and seems to silently laugh to herself for just a moment. In my reading of that body language, it looks like somebody who knew this precise line of questioning was going to be coming at some point, and I guess it seemed almost funny to her because of its predictability. Not, of course, because of its content. So, let me remind you, earlier in this town hall, like, just 20 minutes earlier, Klobuchar had volunteered several stories about growing up as the child of an alcoholic father, and how his repeated drunk driving arrests eventually led him to seek treatment, and how that experience led Klobuchar to make legislative proposals around substance abuse and mental health treatment. Anyway... All of that, the Kavanaugh hearings, growing up with an alcoholic parent, and that big smile during the bear question are very pertinent to what happens next. Okay, so let's rejoin the action here in the final clip.
1: Okay, I'm only smiling because, like, he got a really good job out of the whole thing, okay? He is, like, on the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes, I think he did. We had a process, and that process was a hearing uh, before uh, the Senate. Um, and that, that hearing went on, and then new evidence came out, and that was uh, evidence for, from Dr. Blasey Ford, who even my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who supported Judge Kavanaugh and voted for him, said that she was credible. So she came forward with her story. What bothered me was that after my colleagues said she was credible, then the next thing you hear is really this basic political I I think, um, uh, response with Judge Kavanaugh um, basically not just dissing her story, he has a right to put his story on but basically politicizing the whole judiciary with how he acted. I disagreed with that. And I was very surprised uh, when I was simply trying to mesh her story in the morning with his story. So I said, well, you know, people can black out and maybe you don't remember what happened. And instead of just answering that question, he went right at me and said, you know, basically, have you blacked out? Um, uh, Have you, uh, do you drink beer and all these things? And I decided I could have gone down there with him um, but I decided, uh, in my head, maybe triggered with my dad, I thought, okay i 'm taking the keys away from you. I am not going down here with you.": yeah. I'm And we just saw that exchange. Ask you to answer the question. And we saw
0: that exchange. I was just kind of asking from the standpoint of, do you think there's a difference in how you looked at the Al Franken thing and how you looked at the Brett Kavanaugh thing?
1: Um, no, I don't think so, because I said in these cases due process, I had reasons to not vote for Brett Kavanaugh related to how he had handled consumer cases, how he handled antitrust cases and, other things, and right? executive power.
0: Yeah, and that was the headline maker of the night. There's a whole article on Vox about that. There's a link to that in the show notes. So after the exchange above, Fox cut to commercial, reset, and came back, taking audience questions again, and not much else happened. You know, typical Q&A town hall stuff. But this exchange represents a key set of moments for Klobuchar. Here she is able to draw on her own personal experience and her professional experience in the Senate to make points about how she thinks about these issues. It's clear that on both sides here, the Kavanaugh hearings are still a very raw, fresh issue in the minds of politically engaged people. But the fact is, Klobuchar really is qualified, both professionally and personally, to engage in that stuff. And in the exchange we just played, she managed to put together those two sides, the personal and the professional, in a way that made sense. And I want to point out one more thing. The Kavanaugh hearing was another moment where Klobuchar and fellow Senator Kamala Harris made big headlines for their specific questioning of people on the stand, while just doing their jobs in the Senate. This kind of thing will only continue as the primaries continue, but basically, given that you have three candidates, the third being Booker, who are all on the Senate Judiciary Committee, that means they're all in a position to make headlines just by doing their jobs, and you can bet that they will. And I will keep bringing you the audio as they do that.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect
0: you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List
1: is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.
0: The union vote is essential for Democrats. It is part of every speech Joe Biden gives. It is at the heart of the stop and shop strikes we covered a few weeks ago. And it is a genuine area of disagreement between Democrats and Republicans. But, in what is honestly a bit of a surprise to me, two Democratic primary candidates have announced that their own campaign staffers have unionized with the support of the candidates. Senator Bernie Sanders went first. In a story reported last night, the Sanders campaign claimed it was the first campaign in history to ratify a collective bargaining agreement. Hourly workers in that campaign are now offered overtime pay, for example, which is something that campaigns are infamous for abusing. Well, not anymore, at least not for the Sanders campaign. The Sanders campaign staffers are now represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union Local 400. In a press release from the UFCW, a bunch of new benefits for workers were just listed out. Among them are healthcare benefits for all field organizers, a $20 an hour wage plus healthcare for interns at the National HQ, a cap on management pay relative to staff salaries a bunch of policies for reviewing compensation and reporting grievances, and various vacation and time-off policies that are, frankly, not typical at all in a campaign. Usually a campaign is a kind of work-until-you-drop kind of affair. Well, now there are explicit limits on that work, and those are benefits for the workers. According to union reps, Sanders was agreeable throughout the multi-month process, and they were able to negotiate the contract very quickly. But looking at it through a political lens, this is not just good news for campaign workers working for Sanders. It is Sanders throwing down the gauntlet right in front of Biden. In Biden's first campaign appearance, he called himself, quote, a union man, period, end quote. Now, Sanders has a wedge. His campaign is unionized, and he's going to talk about that. Well, is Biden's campaign unionized? No. We're going to have to see how Biden and the other campaigns react. Well, guess what? Sanders was not the only one yesterday who announced a campaign union. Representative Eric Swalwell tweeted his announcement too, saying that his campaign staff has formerly been sworn in as members of the Teamsters. His plan had been in the works for several months too, so it's apparently a coincidence that both campaigns announced their unionization on the same day. Also, in Swalwell's tweet right after the union announcement, he expressed support for the Uber and Lyft ride-sharing drivers who are currently on strike in a labor dispute. He wrote, quote, we'll always stand with working Americans and support their right to organize and take collective action. Our campaign will not use these services during the strike, End quote. So the question becomes, which campaign will be the next to unionize? Place your bets, folks. Yesterday, Senator Kamala Harris introduced what she calls the Equal Defense Act, a bill that would help public defenders as they do their work on behalf of those accused of crimes. The basic idea is to reduce the number of cases each public defender has to juggle and to fund training for those public defenders. Now, much of the coverage of this bill has started out with one super obvious detail, which is that Harris is a former prosecutor, not a defense attorney. Well, okay, that's fine. But she's not a prosecutor anymore, and she has seen firsthand the effect of large caseloads on overburdened public defenders. Reading from an ABC News story about the bill, quote, The California senator's proposal would establish a $250 million grant program, which would put a cap on the amount of work full-time public defenders can take on, bridge the pay gap between public defenders and prosecutors within five years and generate yearly data on workloads. It would also allocate $5 million for comprehensive training for public defenders. It would also triple funding for an existing program that gives loan repayment deals to lawyers pursuing public defense work, end quote. Incidentally, in this bill's title, it's called the Equal Defense Act, and EQUAL is a backronym that somehow stands for Ensuring Quality Access to Legal Defense. Don't look at that too hard, because you'll see there's some, like, missing letters and extra letters, and the word defense is kind of used twice. But still, you gotta keep it catchy, it's fine. Here's a quote from Harris herself from her Senate page about the bill. Quote, After spending my career around the criminal justice system, I've seen up close how it can fail to ensure that poor defendants receive a fair trial and due process as guaranteed to all of us in our Constitution. All too often, our public defenders are overworked and lack sufficient resources. This makes public defense unsustainable over the long haul, and the thing it suffers is the integrity of our system of justice, which is supposed to be based on fairness and equality. It's wrong, and it's the opposite of justice. End quote. In a statement released by Harris, the bill has earned endorsements from dozens of prominent figures in California, as well as organizations including the American Civil Liberties Union and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And last up today, Elizabeth Warren has released another policy plan titled My Comprehensive Plan to End the Opioid Crisis. Here's what Warren wrote to begin her proposal. Quote, Life expectancy in the U.S. dropped again in 2017, part of the longest sustained decline in a century, one largely driven by the opioid epidemic. More than 685,000 Americans have died from a drug overdose in the U.S. this century, and it's getting worse. In 2017, that number was 70,000 people, the highest year on record, and the majority of those deaths were due to opioids. Emergency room visits for opioid overdoses have skyrocketed. Children have lost their parents, and only a very small percentage of those suffering ever receive the treatment they need. Quote. So the problem is clear, and those numbers give us a grim reminder of its scope. Further down, Warren compares the opioid crisis to the HIV/AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 90s, and says a similar kind of mobilization is needed right now. In fact, she models her proposal on the Ryan White CARE Act of 1990, which provided funding for communities dealing with the HIV-AIDS health crisis as well as individuals coping with HIV and AIDS. Warren's new proposal is simply called the CARE Act as a nod to the Ryan White bill. In it, she proposes allocating $100 billion in federal funding over 10 years. There's a detailed breakdown in her post where each dollar goes, link in the show notes as always, but the basic idea is to provide resources for the communities that have been hit the hardest, plus drug therapies like naloxone for people who are currently addicted, and funding for research and training. Reading from Warren here, If the CARE Act becomes law, every single person would get the care they need. Scores of legislators in Congress have signed on to support this plan. The nation's top experts on the crisis stand behind it. It spells out in detailed terms exactly how funding would get to the communities that need it most. We should pass it, not in two years, not after the 2020 elections, but immediately, end quote. She also talks about how to fund it, using her tax on the ultra-wealthy. Check out Tuesday's show for a super detailed rundown of how that would work. And finally, Warren says she will visit Kermit, West Virginia, which is a small town on the Kentucky-West Virginia border. Now, Kermit is kind of ground zero for the opioid crisis, having received more than 30,000 opioid pills per resident over just a couple of years. West Virginia as a state is one of the hardest hit in the country by this opioid crisis, so her appearance there is very appropriate. Well, that's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. You know, I always wonder what to say in these outro moments, and for today, I'm thinking about two important moments in recent human history. On this day, May 9th, in 1865, President Andrew Johnson issued a proclamation that officially ended the U.S. Civil War. One century later to the day in 1965, the USSR attempted to land their Luna 5 craft on the moon. Previous missions had simply crashed into it, that was intentional, but for Luna 5 they were going for a soft landing. Well, Luna 5 crashed and broke up. You know, sometimes it is hard to stick the landing. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.